So occasionally I've been uh, known to do a series in the summer just called the Summer in Psalms, covering some of the different uh, uh, passages. There's so many uh, good psalms that are encouragement uh, for us. Um, But uh, in in the times that I've done that, I have not covered what is actually one of my favorite uh, psalms. And so I was happy when I received the sermon by request, which these cards are still out on the tables. You can continue to make requests uh, now uh, through these. But this one said, I've always wanted to hear a sermon about Psalm 40, uh, which is also why you got the uh, offertory song that you did. It was uh, requested with that. But uh, grab your Bibles, open up to Psalm 40, uh, so you can follow along. We'll work our way through this great poem Um, And actually, we're going to focus primarily on the first three verses because they present the the theme, the backbone uh, of the entire psalm. So Psalm 40, starting at verse 1, says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Father God, we again just so grateful for your word, so thankful for this opportunity to be together, uh, to come and to worship together and to um, take this time specially to celebrate uh, what we have in Christ, but also to allow you to, to speak and continue to teach us that we might grow in our faith and our walk. So God, we pray that you'd uh, be, send your Holy Spirit, be free to work in us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So quite a few years ago, I read the biography of a guy named George Mueller. He was a, an evangelist and preacher in Bristol, England back in the 1800s. Uh, but he's probably most famous uh, for the orphanages that he and his wife started and ran for about 40 years. Uh, They they actually stopped running uh, the orphanages after 40 years, not because uh, they were tired of of leading that ministry, um, uh, even though they had served, according to George's um, uh, meticulous diary, uh, 10,024 orphans by, by the time they stopped at the age of 70 after 40 years. But the reason they stopped was because at that age of 70, uh, he and his wife felt like God was calling them into missions work. So they handed off the, the, the orphanage duties to capable hands there, and then they spent the next 17 years uh, traveling over 200,000 miles, which back in the 1800s, uh, a lot of miles to travel. Um, doing missions work for God. There, there were many times during uh, the years uh, working with the orphans especially where he found himself in, in dire uh, straits financially. Um, and, and one of those situations, or in, in it, I should say in every one of those situations, he did the exact same thing every time he felt uh, or faced a crisis, and that is he would pray. He would, he would cry out to God, um, trusting that, that the Lord would hear his prayer and, and answer according to his good and perfect will and in according to his good and perfect timing. 
Now, one legendary example of him doing that happened early in the orphanage ministry when they, they still only had a single house. He ended up, by the time they were done, having five different houses uh, that they did this with. But just uh, he and his wife had converted their own home um, with lots of bunk-style rooms, and they made it so they could bring in 30 orphans off the street. Uh, and they brought in all orphan girls. So I'm not sure about having 30 girls in one household. Um, He's a saint of God. I, you just read him. So one day, uh, his wife informed him that there was absolutely nothing for breakfast. Now, this isn't the nothing that you say when you open the fridge and you're shoving things around and you say, oh, there's nothing to eat. This was the cupboards were absolutely bare. There was not one thing that they could put in front of these children uh, to give them food. And so George says, well, we'll do what we normally do. And so he rang the bell, which was the signal for all the kids to come to the table to eat. And they all came. And he says, well, we're going to start by praying. And one of the girls rather innocently asked, what are we giving thanks to God for? There's no food. And he says, "Uh, we're thanking God for taking care of us. And so he began to pray. uh, And as he prayed, they were interrupted by a knock on the door. And the town baker, a Christian man, said that he had felt led by God to donate some bread to them. And he was going to do it yesterday, but he ran out of time and he hoped it wasn't uh, inconvenient if he stopped by that morning and brought a bunch of bread for them. And George said, well, sure, that's fine. I'll send some of the girls out to help you bring it in. And they brought in bread for many days' provision. And so after that was done, they once again gathered to finish their prayer for breakfast now. But before he could finish praying, there was another knock on the door. And the, the milkman was there, and he says, My cart just broke down right in front of your house, and it's going to take me all day to fill it, and I don't want the milk to spoil. Could you guys use it? Well, yes, thank you very much. And so they were able to have breakfast. George Mueller kept a diary so that he would have a record of all the amazing ways that he had personally experienced God's incredible working in the situations and circumstances of his life. And that way he said if he was ever prone to start worrying or fretting over some current incident that he was facing, he could go back and and be be reminded of all the ways he'd already seen God work in the past. And in so doing, he would then relieve himself of that that stress and and pressure of the present doubts and fears that, that they might be bringing him. And actually, what he was doing was exactly what King David did here in Psalm 40. The first two verses, as you look at this psalm, Uh, are in the past tense. They're telling us of a situation that had previously happened to him. He's looking back at something that had gone on and seeing how God had worked for him in that case. And and in this particular case, he doesn't doesn't give us any specifics of what that situation was. He simply describes it as being in the pit of destruction with his feet stuck in the miry clay. 
right? Look, look at verse 2 again there. He says, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm, right? So that, that Hebrew term uh, for, uh, that's uh, translated pit of destruction, it's actually a very broad and, and somewhat ambiguous term uh, in, in the Hebrew language. And so uh, it has been variously translated in, in different Bibles as the horrible or slimy, lonely, dangerous, or desolate pit. In, in fact, it's even been rendered as the pit of despair in the Living Bible, which always makes me think of The Princess Bride, a classic movie that I think everyone should see in every generation. The Pit of Despair. Okay, the point is, whatever the exact meaning uh, uh, of that Hebrew word, it's something bad. It's a pit that nobody wants to be in. And then beyond that, he describes himself, his feet, as being in the miry clay. You know, we don't, we don't use that term miry much uh, anymore. Uh, but just think of wet, slimy, sticky, and gross. And you pretty much get the, the basic idea of what that Hebrew word means. It's the kind of muck where if you're walking in it, your foot just sinks clear down in there. And if you try to pull your foot up, it's so thick and, and slimy, it just sucks your shoe off. You know, this type of thing. And now your shoe is stuck down in this gross stuff, and you're standing there, and it's too gross. You don't want to put your stocking feet down, and you don't want to stick your hand down there, but you're trying to balance to get your shoe. That's miry clay. Okay? It, it, it's, it's, it's just gross. So metaphorically speaking, that's where David was. And, and my natural curiosity wants to know exactly what it was he was talking about. I mean, what was happening? What, what was going on in your life, David, at this point? That, that this is how you would describe it, a pit of destruction, miry clay. I want the details of what he's facing. But, you know, as a, as a skilled communicator, David chose not to give us the details. And, and, and in doing that, he allows us to put ourselves right into the story with him, right? Uh, because uh, we've all been there. We, we've all had pits. However you would describe it, right? Lonely, desolate, slimy, destruction. We've been there. And, and, and see, if David had given us the details, well, then we might be prone to assume, well, this doesn't really apply to me because what I'm facing is very different than what he's facing. Or we could, even worse, get into that comparison thing, right? Well, what I'm going through is way worse than what David had to face. I mean, my, this, what I'm facing is much deeper pit, and, and therefore maybe God can't do for me what he did for David. Or maybe you compare it the other way and you say, well, Oh, man, what I'm facing is whew, nowhere near as bad as what he went through. So, you know, maybe, maybe God doesn't even want to be bothered with what I'm going through. And, and both of those ends of the spectrum, of course, are wrong thinking, right? No matter what your pit is, and no, no matter how deep and slimy it might be or relatively shallow, David wants us to know this is what God can and will do for you. 
So I don't know what your story is. Maybe you've recently come out of a pit. Maybe you're in one right now. Or not to be a, a Debbie Downer here or anything. If, if you haven't been through one and you're not in one right now, just kind of hold on. Chances are you're going to be in one fairly soon. Here's the thing about pits. They seem to pop up out of nowhere at the most unexpected times, don't they? And, and the bad thing about pits is oftentimes we're in one of our own making. You know, harmful, sinful choices that we make can, can capture us in, in a horrible pit of destruction. Uh, or, or sometimes it's not necessarily even sin, right? Uh, it's just stupid. Um, I hope I'm not the only one that's done stupid. But, you know, sometimes we just make rash uh, or ignorant or, or foolish decisions, not sinful per se, but then they, they sink us into a miry bog. I mean, either way, sinful or not, the, we end up in a pit of our own making so many times. But other times we can end up in a pit, and it's not our fault at all. It's, it's the sin of someone else. We're caught because of their foolish or destructive or sinful choice. And now it's impacted us and thrown us down into the pit. Their, their uh, choices can have devastating impact and influence in our life. And third, sometimes we can end up in a pit just because we live in a broken world, right? Uh, disasters and calamity, it happens. A company can go bankrupt, and next thing you know, you're without a job. A storm can, can cause huge damage to your property, and, and, uh, and now you're stuck with that. Disease and sickness can come upon us without any warning. And, and so sometimes there's pits that happen just because of living in this world. And we know from the story of King David, if you've ever read his story, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that, he was in pits of all three. Some by his own making, some by others, some because of living in a broken world. And the point is, the source of your pit really doesn't matter. The fact is, you're down in it right now, and so what do you do? What, what do you do when you're down in the pit? I mean, and of course, we, we have different options on what we can do. On, on, um, one particular option is, is we can give up. Maybe you've uh, seen this in friends, neighbors, relatives, maybe even in your own life before. You take on a, an air of dejected resignation, assuming that this is just the way things are and always will be. And this describes the person who simply trudges through life. All enthusiasm and joy is sapped out of them just by the effort it takes to try to stay upright in the muck and the mire. And they've just given up all hope that they could ever get out of it. They've bought into the belief that it will always be the same. On the other hand, a person could go from the opposite extreme of, of giving up to trying harder. That's a real common 
uh, responses, and we're just going to try harder. If I just do a better job at, and then fill in the blank with whatever it is that you think you need to put more effort into, and then everything will be okay. I'll grit my teeth. I'll exert more energy. I'll try so much more diligently at avoiding X and Y, and I'll try to add more of Z into my life. You know, if I, if I can just do that, things will be okay. And off we set with the best of intentions. That's really kind of the main two options that people tend to follow, isn't it? They either give up or they try harder. King David presents us with a third alternative. As we saw in verse 1, right? I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. There's two things that David calls for us to do in that verse and they should both take a place concurrently. In other words, it's not like you do one thing and after you get that done, then you can do the other. Uh, It's the idea that you do them both at the same time in their continuing ongoing actions that you do together. And David said the two things he did was waited patiently for the Lord and cried out to God. Now, crying out to God, we understand, right? That's, that's prayer. You're asking God to do something in your situation, on your behalf, in your circumstances. And this of necessity, when we, when we start doing that, that means admitting our own helplessness and, and you're going to abandon that, that mode of trying harder. I can't do that. I, I, I'm tired of trying harder because it never works. And so you're giving that up and you're saying, okay, God, you have to do something. And, and, and so then you're trusting God, uh, uh, his plans, his ways, his, his provision and his timing. And while you are praying, you are also waiting patiently for God to act. Now, we hear that term waiting patiently, and what do we think? Well, I'm going to sit back in my easy chair and twiddle my thumbs until God shows up and does something. But that's not at all what that Hebrew word means. In fact, it could also be uh, translated as intently, waiting intently, which uh, um, means a focused anticipation on what God is going to do, which then allows you to have the energy and strength to do whatever you need to do to continue forward as you can keep praying and waiting for God to do what he has to do to bring you up out of that pit. So let me, uh, let me return to the story of George Mueller for just a, an example of how that works. In, in the year 1842, he made this particular entry in his diary. He said, A brother in the Lord came to me this morning, and after a few minutes' conversation, he gave me 2,000 pounds for furnishing the new orphan house. He had, he had purchased a couple houses uh, there. Anyways, now, now he, he goes on. Now I'm able to meet all the expenses. In all probability, I will even have several hundred pounds more than I need. The Lord not only gives as much as is absolutely necessary for his work, but he gives abundantly. This blessings filled me with inexplicable delight, inexplicable delight. He has given me the full answer to my thousands of prayers during the past 1,195 days. Okay, so this is a guy that kept a meticulous library. Uh, diary, right? 
So many orphans had been coming, and the need was so great that George and his wife knew they needed to expand. They were able to purchase another house on the same block in which they lived. They began converting it over into bunk-style uh, space so that there's lots of beds for room for many, many uh, children. But he had no money. The purchase of the house had drained them completely dry. They had nothing in which to furnish the house. So he began to pray. And for over three years, 1,195 days, he was praying about this need. And God supplied the answer after what he described as many thousands of prayers because see, he prayed for it every day, morning, noon, and night, multiple times a day. He would be intently praying for this. And at the same time, as he was patiently waiting for the Lord to answer, he did everything he could to prepare that house for what he believed God wanted to do there, which was provide space for more orphans to live. That, that's patiently waiting. Looking back on Psalm 40, we have, we have no idea how long David was, was in this pit that he's describing. He doesn't tell us any details. But whatever the dura duration was, what he says he was doing was praying and waiting for God in his deliverance. And all that time he was in it, he was also taking care of his normal daily needs for life, doing what he had to do in his position of leadership. And then it's in the last half of verse 2 where we begin to see what happens as God answers this prayerful waiting. He says, He set my feet upon rock, making my footsteps firm. When you've been trying to function in the slippery, slimy muck. The firmness of a solid rock is welcome relief, isn't it? Firm footsteps like that in, in, the, in the Psalms, that denotes confidence and assurance. It, it speaks of safety and, and, and certainty. It, it's, it's the complete opposite of the miry pit. And David... He doesn't tell us how it is that God got him out of this pit. He doesn't let us know whether God changed his circumstances or changed him. Because God uses both of those methods for bringing us out of the pit, right? For the prophet Elijah, who, who was in a deep pit of, of depression, God didn't change his circumstances. God changed him. He gave Elijah a fresh reminder of his presence and his grace that was always with them. And he renewed that, that sense of purpose and plan that God had for his life. And seeing those things encouraged and changed the perspective of Elijah and allowed him to stand again on the firm rock and continue working in ministry. And so we see that, that God changed him. In other portions of the scripture, we see that God changed the circumstances. Maybe one example would be Joseph when he was locked away in a literal prison in Egypt, right? Joseph prayed and waited patiently for God to act. And he spent at least two years that we know of for sure in that prison. And again, waiting patiently doesn't mean he did nothing. We, as you read the story of Joseph, you see he worked hard. He did diligently what he could and should do even while he was there in prison and, and 
And uh, that gained him a position of, of greater responsibility even down there. But eventually, God reached down and pulled him out of that pit and placed him in a position of high authority. God totally changed his circumstances. Sometimes God does that for us. Oftentimes, he does a little bit of both, changing us and changing our circumstances. However it is that God works, the first result from that we see is that he is standing on solid ground, which then leads to verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. In the Bible, a new song is a good thing. A new song represents a fresh work of God's grace in your life. Now, the theme of the song, it's going to not be new, right? It's the same old, uh, old story of God's faithfulness and goodness to us, his, his character of working on our behalf, the marvelous things he does for us. But each time God works in our life, it's a new thing. It's a different day with different circumstances. And therefore, one, when God works again, he, he, he elicits a new song on our, uh, from us because it's a new time he's worked for us. And then here's another great effect. It doesn't just impact you. It impacts others. David says that, that people will, will see and will end up trusting the Lord because of what he's been doing in your life. And, you know, when you first read this psalm, you might think, that, wait, David picked the wrong word here. Because he, he says he's going to talk about a new song he's singing. Wouldn't you expect him to say people will hear and fear? I mean, isn't that what you do with a song? You hear it? But he says, see. And he says, see, because he's talking about his life. People will see the way God has worked in his life. And they will, they will see that, that the reason for the song in his life is what God has done. And that's what will cause them to fear and then trust in the Lord. And that word fear kind of throws people off sometimes, but it's, it's simply referring to a fear that results in, in a sense of awe and reverence, uh, uh, reverence right? It, it's, it's the fear that leads you to show respect and honor to, uh, to another person, to give them the dignity that they're uh, worthy of. It, it's a fear that humbles you in your own sight and elevates the one to, to which you esteem. In other words, this fear is, is a good thing. Now, the only way that people can see what is happening in your life and connect it to what God is doing is if you say that, right? It's only if you give God the credit. You have to talk about what he's doing in your life, which is where this idea of the new song came in. Not that you have to literally sing every time. I mean, if I sang, it might cause people to fear, but probably not not the fear that would be bringing to the Lord, that the idea is that your words will give expression to the faithfulness of God. You give God the credit. And what David is doing in this psalm is setting up a pattern for us to be able to follow in life as well. You keep track of and you look back at those previous times of God working in your life. Keep a record of them. Write them down. 
And then you can remember his faithfulness and how he's come through for you. And you can be reminded of what he did for you at that time and how it made you feel and, and the new song that it evoked in your life of praise to him. And, and there's a reason why he sets this up as a pattern for us to follow, right? It's because chances are good. We're going to find ourselves in a pit once again. I mean, that's exactly what David finds in this psalm. Right? If you keep reading through the psalm, you'll find he's down in the pit once more. Go down to verses, you know, verses 1 and 2 in the past. Uh, we're in the past. This is, all oh, right, this is what God's done for me. But you go down to verses 12 and 13. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. See, these verses are in the present tense. He's in the pit again, and, and he's gone from walking on the solid ground down into the miry clay, and this time it is quite evident that it was a pit of his own making, right? He's, it's a self-inflicted wound. He, he, he says that it was his iniquities that had overtaken him. That's the evil that was surrounding him, his, his own sin that he had done. But based on his past experiences with God, he knows exactly what to do. I'm going to cry out to him. Why? Because God really is pleased to hear our prayers and to deliver us from those pits. And isn't that an awesome revelation? See, maybe you thought that you really couldn't call on God for help because you've already done that in the past, right? God was faithful. He pulled you up. He set your feet on on a solid ground. And now you feel maybe ashamed or embarrassed because you're in the muck again. And you're there, maybe like David, because of your own sin. And Satan is whispering in your ear and saying, Hey, you don't deserve any more help. God's going to give up on you and turn away from you. You've already had your chance and you blew it. My friend, learn a lesson from David. When we call upon God, he is pleased to rescue us. Perhaps right now, the pit of destruction is the place where you find yourself. And maybe you've been afraid to to reach out to God. You might even be trying to make yourself somehow acceptable to God because you're afraid he won't accept you. He won't listen to your prayer. He won't cry out to you. So you're, you're trying to clean up your own life. I'll, I'll show up for church and I'll, I'll try to get rid of this and I'll do these good things and whatever it is. And you're somehow trying to make yourself worthy. But none of those things can take you out of the pit or clean the muck and the mire off of you. Instead, it's the way David ends this psalm that works. That's what makes the difference for us. Look at the last verse. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. What a great prayer for those who are in the pit. When we cry out to God, he hears our prayer. God doesn't say, hey, I'll listen to you once you get all that muck and mire cleaned up off you. He hears us where we are in the pit and reaches down and pulls us out. That's what our God does. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for 
your faithfulness, even when we completely blow it. And God, we know we can end up in a pit for so many different reasons. Our own doing, the sin of others, the brokenness of this world. But whatever the situation, you are a faithful God who listens and hears our cry and responds on our behalf. And God, we may we may need to make many thousands of prayers, as George Mueller said, but you are faithful. And you're always working for our good and our benefit, so we trust your work, even as we patiently wait for you to do what you will do. We pray this in Jesus' name.